This sermon was recorded at Highway San Jose in San Jose, California. If you'd like to find out more about Highway Community, you can head to www.highway.org. Well, welcome to Highway tonight. Uh, We're glad you're here. We're continuing our journey through Paul's dense letter to the Galatians. Uh, We're calling the series Set Free to Live Free. Um, Paul's kind of laying out in this book what the gospel looks like and how that sets us free or should set us free at least. Now the notion of freedom has been part of humanity since the beginning. And uh, in 1949, George Orwell published his novel, 1984. These are some of the the covers it's had over the years. Anybody read this in high school or college? Yes, great book. So 1984 is a harrowing, dystopian account of a frightening future in which Men and women are slaves, basically, and everything that they do, every thought and action they have is recorded and judged by this immense ruling technology called Big Brother. Now, in the post-World War II era and the Cold War era, Orwell's vision kind of became this reference for what might await us in the future, and as we inched closer to the information age, uh, we were sort of worried that 1984 was going to look like 1984, the book. But when we did reach the real 1984, um, probably the most frightening things that happened were that Falcon Crest was on TV, and we all insisted on wearing day glow fluorescent clothes, right? Something else happened in 1984. A mid level tech company called Apple Computer released their new machine called the Macintosh, and they announced it with, they announced the whole thing with this commercial, which aired during the Super Bowl in 1984. Let's take a look. Apple Computer will introduce Macintosh, and you'll see why 1984 won't be like 1984. Oh, yeah. Anybody remember that? Directed by Ridley Scott, that commercial sort of ushered in this new era, right? And uh, if you couldn't tell it was the 1980s in the clip, I think the little orange jogging shorts kind of gave it away, right? Well, here in Silicon Valley, we know how this story unfolded, right? And how, how the story of the Macintosh played out. You know, up until that point in the mid-80s, the, the, the computer, the personal computer, was kind of a cold, unfeeling machine. And it hadn't really infiltrated our, our daily lives, you know. And most of the computers that people did have were, were made by IBM, otherwise known as Big Blue, or Big Brother in this case. And, and Apple was putting a stake in the ground and saying, it's not going to be like this anymore. We're going to add color, we're going to add life, you know and this and that, and we're going to usher in a new era that will look nothing like what's gone before. So I was was an IBM PC user. I was a DOS user. You know anybody? 
Remember, remember DOS? <laughs> and uh, after that, in college, used Windows 3.1. And uh, in the mid-90s, I switched to the Mac, and I've never looked back. I've, I've drunk the Kool-Aid. And uh, the, the irony, I think, is that Macintosh users now look a lot like the people in that video, the bald people, just sort of, <laughs> you know, we will buy whatever you make, you know, kind of a thing. So Paul, here in Galatians, he's trying to get the Galatians to see that they have entered a new era. Christ has come, and with him comes new interpretations of just about everything, and uh, including their relationship with the practice of Torah, or Jewish law. And we've looked at this a lot in this series. He's been trying to tell them that the law has become this antiquated system that they need to break free from. And uh, it begs the question, and it's the question he addresses here in this section, well, what was the point of the law for all those years then? So Paul begins to address that question here in the second half of chapter 3. And as, as we saw last week, he's going to go back to the story of Abraham to kind of unroll this. So let's check it out. This is Galatians 3.15. This section is called The Law and the Promise in the NIV Bible. Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but, and to your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ. What I mean is this. The law, introduced 430 years later, does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God, in his grace, gave it to Abraham through a promise. Why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator, which is Moses. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. Is the law, therefore, opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would have certainly come by the law. But Scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. There's a lot there. Let's pray as we continue tonight. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for all the facets of it. We thank you for the history that's represented there. And we thank you that we are a part of that history and we seek to find our place in it tonight. Even as we look back uh, to these words from long ago, we pray that they would uh, speak to us uh, in a new way tonight. And we do thank you for the chance to be together tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. So what Paul is kind of revealing here is this interesting progression of God's faithfulness and the story of God with men. And at the core of this is this idea that God left a, problem, a promise with Abraham, the, the blessing of all nations, and as that promise unfolds, a question kind of comes with it. And that's how are we as people to act as children of God? And how do we go about identifying the parts of us that are sinful? And how do we go about managing those parts of us and maintaining our presence and our, and our identity as the people of God? So one way to think about all this and what Paul's doing here is, is kind of this long story arc. And I think, I think that's a good way to, to kind of think about it. So in chapter 1... Uh, we have God. In the beginning was God. From the very beginning, 
There have been instructions on how to live, right? We talked last week about the Sabbath and how God was the first person to practice the Sabbath. Long before the Mosaic Law and long before it became a practice, God originated the Sabbath there. In the creation story, in the fall story, we see God leaving men with instructions, men and women, and we see the consequences for not following those instructions. In the story of Cain and Abel, the command, thou shalt not kill, is already there, again, long before the law of Moses. So if we fast forward from there, Act 2, God promises blessing to Abraham, and this is this blessing of all nations that we've seen. Um, Dean has a kind of interpretation of it this way, which Paul uh, bears out here, and I kind of like this. It's, It's that the guarantee of that promise, or the content of the promise, is dependent on the character of God, not in the behavior of men. That's really important. And Paul bears that out here in verse 17. What I mean is this. The law, introduced 430 years later, does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God, in his grace, gave it to Abraham through a promise. In other words, the promise of God is dependent upon the word and character of God, not on our ability to uphold our end of the deal. And thank goodness for that. So act three, the law is delivered to Moses. Mosaic law becomes for a season the primary way people manage their relationship with God and understand their proximity to him and how they're supposed to live. And uh, you know, in music and songwriting, there's this, there's this question that people always ask each other, like, well, who are your influences? Which is a nice way of saying, who is it that you blatantly copy when you play music and try to pass it off as your own work, you know? Or in songwriting, who is it that you kind of blatantly plagiarize and try to pretend that you came up with the idea, you know? Um, musicians are always asking themselves that question, and I think there's an analogy there to this. The, the influence of God, the heartbeat of God, has been in this stuff since the very beginning. And so Paul's trying to, trying to argue that this is, not, this is a radical departure, but it's a continuation of what God has been doing all along. There's not usually an act four, but let's say act four, Christ comes into the picture. Christ enters into human history, and he changes everything. He quotes the law, he expands upon the law, some of it he disagrees with, usually when it causes division among people, which is how Galatians begins. It's the, it's the street-level problem that Paul is addressing. So now that Christ is here, it's a new day. You know, the hammer has been thrown through the screen at Big Brother or whatever, and we're free. So Paul asks, well, what was the point of the law in the first place? And what, what does this newfound freedom in Christ actually look like? This is the question here in this section. He answers it by saying this in verse 23. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Paul describes the law like a tutor, or maybe more accurately, like a babysitter, that for a time is necessary to follow children around and offer them protection. These tutors... Uh, were common in the Roman world. They were slaves, actually, that, that would follow kids around and make sure that they didn't go off the rails and made sure they got to wherever they were going and get, didn't get hurt. 
Paul is saying, we were under the tutorship of the law, and now we don't need it any longer. With Christ, we don't need the guardian. And that was the purpose of the law before he came. So that's kind of the story arc that he's using, you know. So what does this new, what does this new era look like? What does this being free in Christ actually look like? How do we identify our parameters now in our search for holiness in this new Christ-centered reality? Well, let's go back to the Macintosh analogy for a second. So before the computer, we had the typewriter. And uh, this is the Selectric, which is, oddly enough, made by IBM, Big Brother, right? This was the machine we had in our home, and this was, this, the typewriter was kind of the primary way that, it was, our, it was our business machine. It was kind of our main business machine before the computer, you know, with the telephone, I guess. So the computer comes along, and there's a striking similarity between the typewriter and the computer, even though the technology is vastly different. The way we interact with the technology is the same. The keystrokes are the same, even though we have this technology that's far surpassed and far expanded on the idea of the typewriter. Well, in this sense, God's heartbeat has been there all along, and the beat goes on in Christ, but the tune is changing. So what does that new tune sound like? What does Christ himself say about the law? Well, this brings us to um, a concept that's probably familiar to a lot of you, the letter of the law versus the spirit of the law. And uh, to get into that, let's take a look at another clip. This is a clip from the film Walk the Line, which is the Johnny Cash biopic about his life. And uh, in this scene, Johnny is driving a car full of early rock and roll artists to their next gig. And Jerry Lee Lewis, who's sitting in the front seat, is wrestling with the implications of their new careers. Let's take a look at this clip from Walk the Line. Your mind on something? What are you doing up there, man? Building a bomb. Where are we going again? Tyler. George Jones show. Where was it we just was? <laughs> I have another one, Carl. Austin, Carl. That's where y'all picked me up. Hey, John, have you seen the new charts? Cry, cry, cry. I was 14, I think. Yeah, I heard that. But I haven't seen it. Wherever we've been, I can tell you where we're going. Everybody in this car's going to hell. <laughs> what about the car up there? We're all going to hell for the songs we sang. People listen to them, they're going to hell too. You shut up with that. God gave us a great big apple seed, and he said, don't touch it. He didn't say touch it once in a while. He didn't say take a nibble when you're hungry. He said, don't touch it. Don't think about touching it. Don't sing about touching it. Don't think about singing about touching it. And what about me, Charlie? Am I going to hell? No, Jean, you're beautiful. Sleepy is what I am. So I find this clip kind of fascinating because it not only brings up this theological concept of letter of the law versus spirit of the law, but it 
but it also raises a lot of questions about artistic expression and things that, you know, the artist community at Highway, these are the things that we talk about and we, and we like to talk about. Um, but for, for Jerry Lee Lewis here, and for our purposes here tonight, he's struggling with his chosen profession and how it, how it stacks up against his spiritual beliefs. Um, you know, the issue for Jerry Lee in this scene as they speed toward the next gig is like, is, is what we're doing wrong? You know, I'm, I'm working my way through a biography about Sam Phillips, and he was, the, he was the owner of Sun Records, and he was kind of the impresario that recorded a lot of these guys in, their, in, the, in the birth of rock and roll. And there's a lot of stories in there about how Jerry Lee Lewis, who had this actually very thorough knowledge of scripture, was, was always struggling with this idea of what they were doing, and was it okay, and was he gonna go to hell, and he was constantly having these debates. And he's asking, you know, does a song laced with sexual innuendo and suggestion equal the same kind of lawlessness inherent in the actual committing of adultery? In other words, if the spirit of the act is there, is it the same as committing the act itself? Well, in this case, let's see what Jesus says about it. Um, Jesus has been kind of this silent observer so far in Galatians, so let's, let's bring him in. This is from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5:27. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. This is one of those very puzzling teachings, you know, is he serious? Cut, cut things off, what, cut, cut what off, you know? But this is the letter of the law and the spirit of the law at play, where the heart has just as much currency as the hands, right? What is the condition of the heart? What is the condition of the spirit? That's the new starting point as we live the life of faith. With Christ, it's not just about visible actions, it's also about our invisible motivations, what precedes our actions, that's where we find our true selves. Again, from the Sermon on the Mount, let's see what he says about murder. Matthew 5, 21. You've heard, it, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, raka, which means worthless, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. You know, we've known it's wrong to kill ever since the Cain and Abel narrative, right? Now Christ is remixing the law by saying, it's not enough to just resist the physical act of killing, I'm calling you to handle your relationships in a different way. Um, yesterday I was on the road and um, this guy thought I cut him off. I did not, I don't drive that way. None of you drive that way, I'm sure. And he, you know, window comes down, rah, 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 gestures, fingers, things like that, you know. And, this, and the stuff that went through my mind about what I wanted to say to and do to this guy, it was, it was unbelievable, you know. I'm sure none of you have thoughts like that. It's only me, but 
That's what he's getting at here, right? He's saying, I want you to handle relationships in such a way that you actually reconcile and you pursue one another and you mend and you take action when your heart has been blackened against another. And by the way, do it before you come to worship. Do it as an act of cleansing before you worship. He starts this whole thing off by saying this, Matthew 5.1, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. This is what Paul is talking about in Galatians. The problem of people being obsessed with the law and circumcision and whatnot is, to, is totally missing the point entirely. And when we see how much Christ takes the law and then augments it, we can see that. We can see the expansion that's happening there. Behavior modification is no longer the gauge by which we pursue holiness. Our inner lives and the presence of the Spirit are now active participants. We don't sit anymore and absorb the law like the Orwellian audience that we saw in the commercial. We participate, we pursue, we change, and we act. We don't just obey, we live into the pursuit of holiness at the soul level. So in a couple weeks, uh, our youngest son, Finn, is going to finish kindergarten. And my wife and I have been reflecting these last couple weeks that um, when kindergarten ends, we're sort of at the end of the little kid era, right? And uh, from there, we're going to extend and grow into the, into the glorious pre-adolescent years and the tween years and all that that entails. And so there's some sadness there. You know, there's there's kind of a mourning there of, of the loss of sort of that wide-eyed and that innocent um, season that we've been in. And, uh, you know, this week I got to go on the field trip to the farm with the kindergarten class and drive in the car with three kindergartners in the back, which was, I'm still having trouble hearing, I think, out of this year. But just to be with them and watch them for half a day and, and look at the animals and just interact with... Um, you know, everything on the farm and just, and just to see their innocence was fantastic. I think the highlight for them was that the goat pooped right in front of us, you know. <laughs> it wasn't the highlight for me, but... And so it, it, it started me kind of remembering my own childhood and just uh, everything. And it, and it just, it made me sad that this is sort of, this door is closing, this chapter of our lives is, clo is closing, you know. But... When, when I think about everything that, that awaits him after this point and growing up and growing through school and everything, it's like, of course we want him to experience that. Of course we would never want him to stay put in kindergarten as great as it is and as protected as it is and, and, and as innocent as it is. You know, we, we want him to, to experience all the richness of life that's out there. You know, um, My kids, bless their hearts, they don't eat their carrots and their broccoli because they know that it's healthy and it gives them fiber. They, they do it because they want to get dessert, you know. When most of us are learning to drive, we don't drive the speed limit because we're concerned for the safety of all the motorists on the road and we're concerned for our safety. We drive the speed limit because we don't want to get caught. We don't want to get a ticket, you know. But as we grow older and as we mature, our motivations change, the reasons why we do things change, and that's that's what we want for him. Verse 23, before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, 
locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. We are, in a sense, with Christ, all grown up. One last story. When I graduated from high school at 18, I enrolled in junior college at De Anza, which was a very strange couple of years. Uh, if you've ever been to junior college, you, you know what I'm talking about. But I went into junior college with the same attitude towards school that I had had all along, which was, which was basically what is the minimum level of effort that I can devote to this so that I'll keep the wheels moving, you know. And so I, I lived through my first quarter at De Anza, and then I got a report card back that reflected about that amount of effort, you know. It was mostly, I think it was all C's, in fact, you know. It was sort of like, thanks for doing the bare minimum and, and showing up, you know. And something, something kind of happened. I, I was looking at this credit card, and I, and I looked around, and there was nobody... There was nobody behind me going, come on, Kevin, you can do this, man. Try harder. Study harder. Do, do it. You can do it. There was nobody, nobody was saying that. I was 18. I'd come through high school. And I sort of had a realization at that point that, you know, this, this is on me now. If I want to get something out of this, if I want to continue with this, I'm going to have to find something within to to devote myself to this and to give myself to it and to actually get something out of it. And so from that point on, my whole outlook towards school changed and I really began to enjoy it. I really began to, to get a lot out of it. And, and, and for the next several years, I had a really, really great time. It wasn't always easy, but I, I found a motivation. I had grown up, in a sense, instead of going to school because it was the state law, now it was going to school because I wanted to, and I wanted to pursue learning. Paul's trying to communicate to the Galatians and to us that the time for the law has passed, but we've grown up. Now it's about the Spirit. We're saved by faith in the Spirit. Our actions are dictated, hopefully, by the presence of the Spirit. As the band comes up, we're going we're gonna to invite the Spirit um, and just reflect a little bit we're going to sing a song called In Ancient Days. This is a great song for us to close with because it, it asks for a movement of the Spirit even as it sort of recalls the history that's there um, from the beginning with God. It says, move through us like you did in ancient days, but ask for the Spirit to move through us and move among us as well. It says, your love and grace can do this. So let's sing this um, song and just sort of ask that the spirit would move through us and just take a minute and reflect together. And as we do that, let me pray for us. God, may we be people filled with the newness of Christ. May we realize that we're no longer under the guardianship of old ways, but under the more challenging, more arresting tutelage of Christ. May our spirits and our hearts reflect a deep desire, not just to be the best versions of ourselves, but to know Christ and pursue him more deeply. May we embrace the fact that we are justified by faith. May the spirit speak to us and move through us. 
May you, God, move through us and move among us as you did in ancient days. Speak your heart to us about who we're to be and to become. In Jesus' name, amen.